Okay, so in order to set the right foundation for what it is that we're going to be doing today, what I think the Lord wants us to do, I need to point out something to us, which I think most of us know, but maybe not exactly like this. So let me say it this way. In every Christian's life, there are two things which alternate between these two things. You're in one season or another, or one season or another. And this is always going on, but let me make something clear. In fact, what's going on is that there's actually only one thing that God intended from the very beginning. The second thing is simply the result of us, something to do with us. But the first thing comes, and we see it in so many different ways, but we see it in the most famous psalm of all, from David, where he is talking to God. And remember, David is that one who has that most intimate relationship with God. He's the one that really gets the heart of God. And he talks about, and he, he starts out this famous psalm saying this, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Now, let me make something clear. Green pastures and still waters is what God intended from the beginning and nothing else. It was all supposed to be green pastures and still waters. Another way of putting that is the garden. What God was doing in the garden was, think about it, it was nothing but good. It was provision in abundance it was relationship with God. I want you to think about just God, what is God communicating when he gives Adam and Eve his creation, this incredible garden where there is such abundant provision and, always key, no death, no weeds. So there's no work in the four-letter word which work became after the garden. What is God trying to communicate to Adam and Eve? who he is. I'm the God who has and made everything for you. I love you. I'm crazy about you. And I want to give you everything. And here's the key. No cost. Can't earn it. Don't deserve it. Just get it. I just want to give it to you. This is who I am. This is who God is. He just wants to give us an absolutely overflowing, astounding abundance of all. That's what God wants. That's what he means to do. Now the problem is, of course, that he did give us one other thing, bummer, and that was free will, because he didn't want us to be forced to worship him, and so we exercised that free will to go our own direction. And when we did so, we became separated from him, separated from the garden. And so all the rest of mankind's history is Simply a story of God trying to restore us to what he originally intended, right? So the way that David says it in the psalm is he says, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Let me paraphrase that a little bit so that you'll get the sense of it. He makes me right with him by leading me through places of death. If we have made choices to go our own way, it's not just that that choice and the consequence of that choice has to be paid for, which is Christ on the cross. It's that he has to get rid of this thing in us that wants to go our own way. He has to do something. And of course, he does that by giving us a new nature. Jesus dying on the cross, forgiving our sin, paying for it, rising again, and giving us a new nature. Got it? Right? But the point is, is that what he's doing is he's leading me in paths of righteousness, getting me right with him again by walking through the valley, the shadow of death. But I'm not going to fear evil for you're with me. This isn't, this is a tough thing, but it's not a bad thing. This is something that you're doing in order to bless me. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, if this is true, then we can say this. Having gone astray, God is simply trying to bring us back to the beauty, abundance, and blessing that he originally intended us to live in. I, I want to, let me go to the next one, then I'll, which means the hard parts of life, the difficult past, the putting to death, is there only because God is trying to bless us. What am I trying to get at? It may seem like I'm really straining at something here, and it may seem like a gnat to you, but it's not just a gnat. It actually turns to be something that is choking all of us all the time. A sense 
so that you have to do something. In the Christianese way, which we none of us go after if you're a Christian for a very long time at all, it's I have to earn it. I have to somehow be worthy of it. I have to do something in order to get what he's given. Well, of course, if he gave you a gift and that's what he wanted to do and you didn't do anything to get it, then the, then the principle is not that you can earn or do anything to get it. Nobody can do that. And that's the way that we handle it on the surface level so that we can get rid of what we call works mentality. And as Christians, we walk around and say, I'm not into works mentality. But there's another variation of that same spirit that actually is in almost every Christian. And that's this sense that you just always have to do something more. There's just, it's just a continual battle. It's just a there's always something wrong with you. And you've just always got to keep improving, getting better. And God's always going to be putting you through these things in order to do something. And that thing can start to warp on you. There's actually a truth in that thing. But the reason why I'm pushing this so hard is it begins to warp in you and it becomes its own level of work spirit. It becomes its own level of not understanding what God wanted. So here's what I'm trying to make really clear. What God intended for every Christian was simple abundance from him as a loving God to you. And the only thing that you have to go through that's tough is the parts that he's trying to get you back to that place. It's not because he's just putting you through the paces in order to make you work out. He's not just trying to make you more mature. He's not just trying to do all. He's just trying to bring you back to what his original intent was, which is free, loving, abundant, massive pouring out of his presence, of his goodness, of his mercy. And in fact, that's how David ends his psalm, isn't it? You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, which I used to fear, which I used to freak out about, which it used to inflict me in various ways, whispers of what you've got to do. But I don't think about those anymore because now you've anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Not works and effort. Goodness and mercy, abundant blessing, will follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell where? In the garden. No, better than the garden. In God's house. <laughs> right? With him, that new heaven and new earth where there's no need of the sun or the moon because God is its light and we are living in his light, in his glory. We're living in him. This is what he intends. This is what he wanted. The beginning was the garden, just massive blessing which you do not deserve, you cannot earn, you cannot do anything to get. And then a heaven that is the same thing. <laughs> and the only thing is, is in the middle here, He's trying to do what? Set us free. And here's the irony, particularly in a place like Bellevue. Even from things that seem like they're a blessing themselves. Even from a life that seems like it's pretty good. We are living in Bellevue in the apex of the apex. This is one of the single best times to be alive for the ordinary person that has ever existed in the history of mankind. And you're living in a town which is at the top of that. <laughs> you're living in a town that is being blessed unbelievably. Now, not everybody here is, you know, Bill Gates, right? It doesn't matter. You're living in a place of blessing that is unheard of in the history of mankind for a common person. The level of gadgets and goodies and, and water and heat. And I live in a stinking tower. I live 20 floors up in the sky. And it's beautiful and I love it. And God, I hope we get to stay there. Because I can't afford it. But anyway, whatever. <laughs> but you get the drift, okay? We live in this amazing place at this amazing time. The reason why that's our foundation for today is this. We have been, for years now, walking through Luke. And we're right now coming to the very end of it. It'll still take us a few months. Don't think we're done. We're in chapter 22. It goes through 24, just so you know, okay? And who knows how long that'll take, okay? But let me say something. The whole, the whole college and master's level that we've been looking at is basically coming to a close now. 
There's a few more things, the Last Supper that he'll do, and then there's a lot about his death and resurrection and so on. But the, the whole journey that he took them on in order to bring them to a certain understanding, in order to bring them to a certain place, is coming to a close. And he is right now, today, in the passage that we're in with the disciples, wrapping it up. He's trying to give them a picture of something that is going to happen, which on its surface looks horrible, but actually when you get underneath the surface to what God was really trying to do, is unbelievably beautiful, glorious, incredible. And we've been saying the whole time that just as we've been watching Luke and reading Luke in order to see how God discipled the disciples, if you'll let him, he's been doing the same thing in us for all these years. I'm telling you, I've told you before, and I'm going to say this. This has been the most important years of my entire Christian walk. I have never learned more and grown more and changed more. It's been phenomenal. God has retaught me who he is. He's retaught me what it means. I feel like everything that I knew before was, was true and right and was superficial compared to where he's now taken me. So he's wrapping it up, and he's going to wrap it up with us. He's trying to wrap it up with us too. So last week, we saw him do something, and what we saw him do was is we saw him take a really devastating commentary about what was going to happen, including that some of the disciples who thought they were with Jesus, who was now going to be revealed as Messiah and overcome the Romans, but he's told them last week that they're going to die. Many of them are going to die, and in fact, of the disciples, all but one do. Vicious deaths. And what we noted last week was, as well, initially, that's pretty disconcerting, <laughs> particularly if you thought it was all victory, victory from here on out, and then all of a sudden you find out it's not just victory, victory. You're going to die, and you're not going to get to experience, right? But the bottom line is, is what he was doing was, how would you like to go through something that was totally not what you were expecting and not have been warned? You would lose heart, right? If you were going through persecution and you thought that Jesus was going to do this and now he's dead and now there's all this persecution on you, you would lose heart. But if God told you that it was going to happen, what happens? You start realizing it may end in my death, but here's the fact. God's bigger. God's better. God's more wonderful. He's got it. I know that he does so I can hang in there. I can endure. That's what we learned last week in the beauty. And this week, this is still the same conversation. We've, we've gone you know, right to the next thing. And so he's doing a similar thing today, but last week it was things that are going to happen in the disciples' lifetime. This week we're actually learning about something that's going to happen 37 years later. And it's a, it's a detailed account essentially of what's going to happen 37 years from now. And what's happening is, yes, there's some of this thing about something difficult, but God is bringing them comfort. He's telling them what to do. He's warning them, which is a good thing for God to do, warn us. But actually, what's really happening today is God is going to take this absolutely brutal thing that happens in history, and he's going to use it inside of the disciples' heart to completely change their lives, wrapping it up. What's it all mean? What's it all going to? He's going to show them something. He's going to start something in them right now, which is going to cause them to become completely different people than they ever even imagined. And let me just say it this way. If he did that with them, what makes him think he's not doing that with us? Do you look at your Christianity sometimes and think there must be more? Do you look at your Christianity sometimes and say, surely there's something else? Here's the answer. There is. There is. And it's incredible. So that's where we're headed today. John Yalkowski, elder of the church, just one of my best friends, uh, a man of God, for this particular sermon, for this particular moment in our history, the perfect person for this. Pray for the sermon. Pray for another church, would you, John? Lord God, we just thank you for the work that you're doing in our lives, in and through us. And Lord, your work in us is not yet done. Lord, I pray that today's sermon would take us, as Kurt has outlined or kind of 
teased us with is that this would that your your work is not done and you want to do something significant to change us in a deep and deep uh, a deep and meaningful way so Lord, i pray that today um, our, our hearts would be open to hear what you have to say uh, to encourage us uh, through the tough times and even just through whatever's going on right now that we can see the future in a different perspective and Lord, we want to be your people doing what you want us to do. And so we're open to change. Um, help us to, to um, assimilate what you have for us today. Amen. And Lord, I just pray for Eastside Foursquare. Lord, as they're Amen. today, um, whatever they're doing, Lord, you're in the process of doing with them what you're doing with us. And Amen. you're taking us all to a deeper Amen. place. And I pray that you would richly Amen. bless them today. In Amen. Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome, awesome. Thank you for that. Eastside's going through a good transition. Uh, let me say, if you're joining us online right now, welcome. Really loving having you here. No, many are. All right, so here's that difficult passage, okay? And when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you will know that the time of its destruction has arrived. Those in Judea must flee to the hills. Those in Jerusalem must get out. Those in the country should not return. To the city, for those will be the days of God's vengeance, and the prophetic words of scriptures will be fulfilled. How terrible it will be for pregnant women and for nursing mothers in those days, for there will be disaster in the land and great anger against this people. They will be killed by the sword or sent away as captives to all nations of the world, and Jerusalem will be trampled down by the Gentiles until the period of the Gentile comes to an end. Now that is a freaky thing for him to be saying. Okay, if you're a disciple and you're going in there thinking that Jesus is going to reveal the Messiah and overcome the Romans, what Jesus has just said right now in this moment has freaked you out. This is not what I was expecting at all. I don't understand. Not only is it not what I was expecting, I want you to just take this for a minute here. Um, think about... Uh, we've talked about the destruction of Jerusalem, so this sermon's not about that. But I just need to take one second to describe to you one aspect of the destruction of Jerusalem, which is totally at play right here. The disciples were thinking that Jesus was a Messiah, which he is, but was going to you know, be revealed as that, overcome the Romans. That's what they're thinking. Well, this is 33 AD, 70 AD, this exact thing happens. The Romans surround the city. Now that's 37 years, and remember a generation is 40, and what God has done is he has given the generation that crucified Christ a full generation to come to realize the error of their ways, to see what God is doing through the disciples, through the apostles, through the people that are going out, the differences being made around the world, to see what's going on, and to come to repentance, and had they come to repentance, he would not have destroyed Jerusalem. But he knows that they're not going to come to repentance, and so he's telling them what's going to happen because they're not going to receive it, even though they had a whole generation to try and get it. So what did happen when this happened was this. There were factions inside the city that believed that what was happening was, just like in the days of old, that the Israelites were being surrounded by a much stronger army, and there was no hope, but God was going to do a miracle. And this was the day that they were going to be set free from the Romans because God was going to show up and miraculously kill all the enemies. Do you see it? So there were factions. It wasn't the majority population. Most of the population, it started in February, it ended in August. Most of the population is starving to death. Literally. I mean, over half of the people that die in Jerusalem, which there's, it's a, a town of 100,000 normally, but during the feasts, and particularly an important feast like Passover, which is one of the two big ones, a Day of Atonement and Passover, but Passover is one where every, not everybody, but the vast majority of the country comes, and they end up with a million, two to a million, three people inside the city at that point, and that's when the Romans surround them. Now, if you're thinking that God's going to do a miracle, well, you want to be part of the miracle, Right? But people are starving to death, and they're not thinking that this is a miracle. They're thinking that they're going to die, and so they're trying to escape, and the factions inside the city are killing them if they try and escape for two reasons. One, we need your sword. We need you to wield a sword against the Romans when the victory comes. And number two, think about this now. Watch how deceived. When you try and escape, well, I won't talk to you. Okay, when, when a person tries to escape... <laughs> 
When a person tries to escape, they're lacking in faith. And that's going to make God not do the miracle. <laughs> Ever heard of that one before? <laughs> right? You see it? So they're killing him. And as a warning. In fact, this is how bad it gets. The Roman general outside watching what's happening inside the city saying, I've besieged many cities, but I've never seen people go crazy like they're going crazy. I don't understand what they're doing. Most cities would have given up by now and we would have done what we had to do and we'd have blinded a few people or done whatever and take some captives. But, you know, the whole thing would be over. But he was going, these people are so crazy. He commanded his army, if anybody escapes, don't harm them. Some of the Roman soldiers, because they were mercenary to some degree, they got rich by overcoming places and taking the treasure. They started killing the Jews that were escaping and pulling their teeth out for the gold. The general of the Roman army went to the people who were doing that and before the whole army killed them. <laughs> and he said, the next guy that does that to another Jewish person, that's what I'm going to do to you. <laughs> you see this? So what was happening here was, and they would have every reason to think it, because it's a messianic time. There was this guy, Jesus, and oh, he didn't turn out to be the Messiah, but surely there is going to be a Messiah, and now we're surrounded. And now, and the deceived people, who are, they don't have to be the majority, but they can lead the majority astray. And the deceived people lead everybody astray to where they're thinking that there's a miracle that's going to happen. And either way, they keep them from escaping to the point to where they starve to death, start eating their babies, blah, blah, blah. I've told the stories before. If you want to look at it, read Josephus. It's an amazing account of it, but there's other sources and other sermons. You can look at all of that. But I'm, I'm, I just wanted you to see that what Jesus said here is absolutely true. And that when Jesus tells the disciples, run, that's the opposite of what they're thinking they're supposed to do. They're thinking we need to stand in faith. And he's telling them, run. <laughs> right? What did this mean? How did this feel to the disciples? What was Jesus trying to get out of this? What was he trying to get them to understand? What did he want them to get out of telling this story? Because like we saw last week, the initial telling of the story does what? Freaks them out. They don't understand. Confuses. But remember something. In his final supper, Jesus told them, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. So what's going to happen is some things that they also couldn't conceive of. And now all of a sudden, Jesus is not going to be there anymore, but the Holy Spirit's going to be inside of them. And they're going to remember these words that were being spoken by Jesus about Jerusalem. And they're going to start trying to understand what that means. The Holy Spirit's going to bring it back to their mind, and he's going to start causing them to think about what does this mean? What are you supposed to get out of it? That's what we're looking for. And here's what he's trying to get him to understand. You have to release your grip on what you think it means to be Jewish. Not what it means to be Jewish, because there is a thing that it means to be Jewish, and that's still true. But it's what you've come to believe it is to be Jewish. There are things that you believe that what make you, Jesus, that make you Jewish that are not accurate. Faith is what makes you Jewish. Just like it makes Christians Christians. It's not the things that they count on. What do they count on? What's the first thing that a Jewish person would count on for how it is that they were, they were they're, you know, what, what, what gives them identity? What's the first thing? The land. The land was promised to Abraham 2,000 years before this particular period of time. The land. <laughs> There was this guy, Abram, who was just nothing, nobody, nowhere. And he came in and God said, I'm going to give you all of this. And then, you know, Egypt happened and everything else. But God eventually gave it to him. So the land, big deal. I don't know. You want me to switch or something? It's all right. Here's, here's, here's the kingdom of Israel at the time of Jesus. Here's what I want you to see. I want you to think about... The size of the United States, so that you can really feel what the disciples were feeling, the size of the United States compressed into the size of Israel. Here's what that means. 
from top to bottom, it's 150 miles. That's from here, right where we're standing, to a little bit past Shehalis. 150 miles. That's how long the whole country is. Okay, we haven't got outside of Washington yet. And there it is. Now, as the crow flies, it might be actually the border. But by the road, if you took the road, it's about, I think it's 165 miles to Vancouver. So it's 150 miles. So something less than Vancouver. The width of it is only about 50 miles, and it goes only by road. It only goes about Cleelum, but maybe it's a little past that by the crow fly. You see it? So the whole nation of Israel is only so big. Not only that, but think about what Jerusalem is. See, when we, we don't have a, a modern-day comparison. The closest we get is Washington, D.C., because Washington, D.C. is the place where all the stuff is, Right? The White House, right? There's a national identity that we have from the White House. What does it mean? You know, this elected official and freedom and constitution and all this kind of stuff. Now, here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to think about the White House back in Washington, D.C., where you have some and maybe you visited or maybe you haven't. I want you to think about Washington, D.C. as being in Olympia. And you have to go there three or four five, five times a year for a festival. So you're there all the time. This is a place that you go and meet friends with and you know the cafes you like and so on. See what I mean? This is a place you go all the time. Now what if somebody came to you and said, you know the White House? Yeah. You know the Cong Congressional Building? That, the Congressional Building is huge. You ever been to it? It's massive. The Supreme Court, I mean what difference we have to the importance of the Supreme Court, a nation of laws is what we say, and it comes out of that building. Here's the mall, the whole mall area. See that? All the way in the background there with the reflective pool, that's the Lincoln Memorial down there at the other end, and then you got the Congressional Building here, and there's Washington Memorial, and to the right over there is um, the White House, and you, so you see it, but then there's the Smithsonian's, there's a new Bible Institute Museum there, by the way, um, but anyway, there's all of these Super important, the history, the legacy, everything that America means. And you, you visit there all the time. You go down to Olympia for these festivals, and you go into all of these buildings, and you, you interact with them, and you do everything that you're going to do and everything else. And now, here's what I want to tell you. Somebody comes to you and tells you, 37 years from now, all of that is gone. Absolutely gone leveled what do you think freaks out what do you want me to do apparently that was not it Right. What's that? It, it is. I, anybody who knows me in technology knows that. I used to say, Dave Brunk, I used to say that his house was built on an Indian burial ground, and that's why no technology worked there. But, but since then, I've discovered I'm the Indian burial ground because no technology works around me. Okay. All right. So, but, but, but you catch the drift. Now, now what, is, what, is the, what is the Jewish person, now that we understand what it might mean as American to feel this, what is the disciple feeling at this moment in time? inconceivable, <laughs> right? In the princess bride meaning of that word, right? Inconceivable. Well, it is conceivable, so it's not inconceivable, but it's inconceivable, <laughs> right? This is inconceivable. 37 years, all that stuff is gone? No way. And this is, this is Washington, D.C., which has been there in that form for what, maybe 100 years? Jerusalem and almost everything that we're talking about has been in Jerusalem for 1,000 years, a thousand years. Yeah, there was the Babylonian exile and that, that, that messed things up for a little while. But for a thousand years, it's been there. A thousand years. Um, I don't want to do one of those, but I'm not going to do this anymore. Thank you.
We good? Thank you. Thank you. FYI, I just want you to know that we are having, we, we've had the same technology in this building for about, how long have we been here? 12, 13 years. And we've had the same technology in here. And because of the lot sale and so on, we're taking a very small percentage of that and getting huge deals and everything else. But we're going to replace most of the technology in here so that this kind of thing doesn't happen anymore. I just want you to know that that's coming. Be aware of it. We're not using tithe money for it. We're using investment money like we've been doing with most of the things that we do here. But I just want you to know that we're going to be replacing a lot of things because we're just going to try and sort of update it all to a grade that we shouldn't have the problems that we have. Of course, they'll still have problems, so don't think it's going to be perfect, but, you know, okay. All right, so, so now there's another thing. There's another thing that you've got to understand. So right there, you're kind of going, if Jerusalem falls and there's nothing there, what are we? Do you, see what do you see what you got to do in your heart in order to get into the place where the disciples are? What's left? Our identity is the land and this town, this city that God himself chose. And not only did God himself choose it, this is the place where we cannot find an analogy in modern-day America. This is the place where the temple is. This, is. this is Jerusalem in the time of Jesus, an artist's rendering of it. You see where the smoke's coming out in the near and you see that kind of reddish building that goes around and then the white courts that go around that? That's the temple. But you can see there's much more than just the temple there. There's the towers over there where the governmental figures are and the army is run out of and so on. There's a whole lot of complexes and a whole lot of people and a whole lot of activity going on right there. But that's not really the point I want you to see. The point that I want you to see is that thing, that temple is God's dwelling place has been since Solomon. Yeah, there was the Babylonian exile, but then we rebuilt it. This is the place where God is. And, and what Jesus said about it last week was, some of his disciples began talking about the majestic stonework of the temple and the memorial decoration on the wall, but Jesus said, the time is coming when all these things will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. The temple... You can take DC, but you can't take what? What's the, what's the, see, there isn't that thing. But in the, the Jewish identity is the temple. That's where we go. That's where we make sacrifice. That's the day of atonement. That's where we get forgiveness. That's where God dwells. You're telling me the temple's not going to be there? Then who am I? Where does that leave me as a Jewish person, as a disciple? What? I don't know how to define myself anymore. I don't know what's going on. Do you see it? This stuff is inconceivable in the extreme. Well, you know what? It turns out there's going to be a whole lot of things. We are less than 48 hours in the story right now from Jesus dying. There's another thing that the guys weren't conceiving of, despite the fact Jesus told them it was going to happen. Jesus dying is something else they couldn't imagine. Here's another one they couldn't imagine. Jesus rising. Prophesied, but they don't get it. They can't imagine it. How about this one here? Becoming new. Getting a new nature. There's that prophecy in Ezekiel about dry bones, but what does that mean for me? I don't understand it. It's not that it wasn't there. It's not that God didn't make it clear that it was coming. It was that it's inconceivable in the proper princess bride meaning of the word, which is to say that you should have conceived it, but you, we don't. And then the Holy Spirit living in me, living in me, not just anointing me for something and then having to disappear because I'm such a schmuck, he's going to burn me up. <laughs> the Holy Spirit living in me? This is no possibility. This doesn't, how does God come and live in you? <laughs> There's no chance. I'm big enough to work, not nah, even then. <laughs> but you see, going through all of that in the next five days, they start to perceive differently. They start to conceive differently. They start to think of things as being possible that because there's all kinds of stuff that's happening, it's not possible. And now, as Jesus is with them for 40 days and then he ascends, and now they're alone and the Holy Spirit's with them, so they're not alone. And now the Holy Spirit is working on them about what that whole Jerusalem thing meant. 
they start processing it differently because now a whole lot of new stuff has happened. In fact, what was Jesus trying to get them to understand? We've already said it, and we're still saying that same thing, but let's just go into that everything they thought would continue, the nation of Israel, which was going to disappear just a few years after Jerusalem falls, Jerusalem, all the governmental buildings, the temple, all that stuff gone. All the stuff they thought would continue wouldn't, and a whole bunch of stuff they couldn't imagine happening would take place. Now, that's a pattern that we're going to see come back, but let me just go a little bit further on this. Let's just show how much it's new. Jesus says to them, you're going to be missionaries. Uh, what's a missionary? If I'm a disciple, what's a missionary? The closest I got is there's these rabbis and they get trained up and they do a little traveling and sometimes they stay, but a lot of times they'll go to different cities because they need a rabbi and you know, there's not a rabbi in every city and so they'll do a little traveling. They might even get outside of Israel a little bit. They might go, but they certainly don't go to Samaritans. They certainly don't go to some other culture. What would we have to do with any other culture? We're Jewish. We go to synagogues in towns and they need a rabbi, so I go, even though it's dangerous to travel, right? We, we don't think anything about it. We hop in our car or a plane and boom, we're there. No problems, no, we don't worry about it. We don't pull up to the gas station and look around to see, is this someplace I'm going to get robbed? We're not driving down the road wondering if somebody might come in front of us and rob us. We don't do that. But not only that, but I want you to just think about how sort of set the typical Jewish person was. Peter's name was Simon Bar-Jonah. You know what that means? Simon, son of Jonah. You know why that's important? Because Jonah lives in the town where Simon does. <laughs> so Jonah's right over there, and you know what Jonah does, and Jonah was a fisherman, and so Simon's a fisherman because the son does what the father does because it's always, that's apprenticing and so on, and very rarely does that change. So, you know, Jonah, you're Simon, the son of Jonah. You know, our last names come from that. We have last names because of this pattern of saying, you are so-and-so, but you're related to such-and-such. So somebody who was Smith usually came from a line of Smiths, okay? And on it goes. But the bottom line is you were trying to identify with who your parents were. Now that was important or that was, had value when you're in a community where you live by your parents. How many of you live right now in the same community that your parents do? No, better question. Raise your hands if you live in a community that isn't where your parents are. Look at that. I can tell you right now, if we were in Israel in Jesus' day and we asked that question, people would say, what do you mean you don't live where your parents live? <laughs> Why would you do that? What are you going to do? You know, you need a leg up. It's dangerous. It's hard. There's not just jobs out there. There's certainly no social welfare to take care of you if something goes wrong. Stick around. You see it? This whole thing of going out you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witness in Jerusalem. I got that. Judea, I'm still good with that. Samaria, we hate Samaritans. <laughs> we would never go to Samaritans. We don't even walk in their land. We're not going to them. And the ends of the earth, I have no idea what that means. And yet Jesus is telling them that's what they're going to go do. Well, if you're telling somebody that they're going to go do something that they can't even conceive of, something's got to happen in the middle there somewhere, right? Something's got to happen to get you to conceiving of it so that you'll go and do it. Well, that's what's happening right now. Here's another one. As I said earlier, you need to disconnect from what you think it means to be Jewish. Not what it is to be Jewish, but what you think it means. Because I'll tell you right now, we talked about Jerusalem and land and all that kind of stuff, but here's what it means to be Jewish. For the, for the Jewish person, even more fundamentally than the temple, although the temple is probably equal to it, it means to be a people of the law. You know, Abraham went, and then there was this Moses guy when we got delivered from Egypt, and God gave him the law, and we lived according to the law, but we didn't really live according to the law, and that caused the northern ten tribes to be exiled, and then even Judah, the, the southern two tribes, they got exiled because they weren't obeying the law, but boy, when they came back, they understood who they were, what their identity was. You were people of the law, and the people kept that. 
And now God comes to Peter and says, eat, and there's unclean things in it. And Peter says, no chance. <laughs> no, Lord. God says, eat, and your first response is, no. <laughs> no, Lord, I've never eaten anything our Jewish laws have declared impure and unclean. But the voice spoke, do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. This didn't just get over right then. They didn't get the message. Because years later, when Paul is going out there teaching to the uttermost parts of the earth and teaching them that the law was something different than what Jewish people think it is because it's not their identity. Faith is. Christ is. That's your identity. And when he's out there preaching this, there's Jewish people that keep showing up and saying, no, it's about the law too. You can have this Jesus guy, but be sure and keep the law. And even Peter got caught up in it. Peter, who had the vision, who just said no, but then was told to go and went. And that's where the Gentiles first got saved. And Peter came to Antioch. I, Paul, had to oppose him to his face for what he did was very wrong. He'd gotten sucked back into this law thing. Now right there, lesson, right? We think we get free of something. God sets us free from something, but are we? It always has a way of tentacling back, trying to suck us in. We gotta be careful, we gotta be discerning. No, actually, here's more important. We got to go from the old wineskin to the new. You have to go from where you were to someplace you don't know. And that's what Jesus starts to work in their hearts when he tells them Jerusalem's gonna fall. When they start pondering that and thinking about what it means and watching what's happening, what Paul's doing and what other people are doing, the Holy Spirit starts putting it together inside of them and saying, you know all these things and what you thought it meant to be Jewish? That is not what it means. Paul is telling you the truth. What it means is faith. What it means is Christ. And you have to make this transition or you're going to be stuck. And do remember, the church did get stuck. The church in Jerusalem over the years, which was initially a force that was being withstood by the Jewish people because they saw it as being terribly distinct, the church over time actually came under the wing of the Jewish religion and it just became a sect. So you could be Jewish Christian or you could be Jewish something else but they had lost the distinction. And then God ended that church, 70 AD. It was done. <laughs> and now where was the church? Where Paul had taken it. And where the disciples had taken it. <laughs> India and Spain and all over the place. So if all that's true, I've just laid out for you the case that what was going on at this moment in time, as Jesus was wrapping things up with them, he was alerting them and getting them to start to process that all things are going to become new. Well, some years ago, we started a process. And we said, we're looking at Luke, and we're going to be discipled like Luke. And what we did was empowered, and I silly thought that what that had to do with was God was going to teach us how to do more miracles. At this point in time, I don't really care if God ever does a miracle through me or not. I think that's actually about the best place to be if you want God to do a lot of miracles through you. Because it can't be about the miracles. That's always the wrong place to put your attention. Your affection and your focus is on Christ and whatever he wants to do, for whatever reason he wants to do it. We sang a song today, which I absolutely love, and I hope we keep singing it. But I, I, great is your faithfulness, you've never failed me yet. I want to tell you something. Here's great faithfulness when God does seemingly to your mind fail. Yeah. Amen. Holding on past that, that's the truth. Because he didn't. You'll find out one day how he didn't, but you may be in heaven. <laughs> right? Right? Faith. So what are we as Christians, what are we supposed to get out of this journey that he's got the disciples on that we're supposed to do the same thing? 
The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Thank you, God, for letting us live in Bellevue. Thank you, God, for that. It's incredible. And it's not just Bellevue. America in general is just an incredibly wonderful place to live right now. Not every single place, not all of it good. I get it. There's lots of poverty. There's lots of, but still, on the average, on the whole, it is such a blessing to live in America right now. It's incredible. Okay, we get all wrapped around the axle about things that are going on, and there's a reason to do that, because you got to look ahead. But the bottom line is, it is phenomenal what is happening today. There are blessings in amazing ways. And let me tell you something else. This is very important. It is fashionable for Christians to think and have a little guilt about a really nice house. Let me clear that up for you. God put the people that he loved in the nicest houses that you've ever seen, and they're infinitely nicer than any house in this area. Now, if you twist that and start to thinking, oh, what God wants to do is put me in a really nice house, well, then you put the cat cart before the horse, and you've got the whole thing bass awkward, Right? But do you understand something? God does not care about what house you live in at all. He only cares about whether or not you own the house or the house owns you. It isn't more complicated than that. He doesn't care if you have nice things. That doesn't bother him. He's the author of nice things. It's called the garden. It was nicer than any existence that is being lived, no matter how wealthily or no matter how wonderfully in this world. Adam and Eve had it better in the garden. And every single person in heaven has it better than any person on earth. So God is good at giving you good and wanting you and having no problem with you being in good. The problem he has is when that good starts to own you in a way that it takes you out of a better good. And that better good is him. Him. And so because we do that, because we let our possessions possess us. He leads me in paths of righteousness. He gets me right with him by leading me through things of death so that I can put to death the reason why that thing that he was trying to bless me with ended up hurting me. Even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I fear no evil, you're with me, you're rod and your staff, they comfort me. As we said a bit ago, having gone astray, God is simply trying to bring us back to the beauty, abundance, and blessing that he originally intended us to live in, which means the hard parts of life, the difficult past, the putting to death, is only there because God is trying to bless you, bring you back into a garden-like existence with him, relationally, provision, all of it. This isn't faith doctrine, I hope you understand the severe distinction between what I'm saying, and if you just believe hard enough, you can get it. That's Oprah Winfreyism. <laughs> just draw it to yourself. We're not talking about that. Does anybody think we are? Because if you do, please, talk to me afterwards. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is, is that God desires to bless you in ways that you cannot even begin to imagine. You cannot even think or imagine, says the scriptures, the thing that God has prepared for you. See, we, get, we become impoverished in our mentality because we get a poverty mentality going on like we're guilty about and all of this kind of stuff. But it's just, but here it is. So if the disciples had to be disconnected from what they knew in order to become what they did not know, what makes us think that we don't have to do the same? And now here's, this is a subtlety, but here comes the subtlety now. If you go to this church, there's two things I think you get out of this church. One is amazing people. Right? I mean, it's just amazing people go here. And they are wonderful. And it's loving and it's real. And God is making it even more real than it was when Eric Lee put the thing up there about everybody talking about family. And he's making us more that way than we were before. And thank you to Amy for the thing that went yesterday. And I hope you guys went. And you're starting to understand that God is trying to make us instruments of reconciliation with one another. That's the ministry he's given us. 
So he's trying to do something beautiful and wonderful and make his family at a deeper level because he's not judging us for what we were. He's saying, having been faithful in the little I gave you, I'm trying to bring you into more. I'm trying to bring you into a deeper depth of family than you've ever known before. So I think what you get firstly out of this church is not the first thing, it's not the most important thing, but I think one of the two things that you get out of this church is great people. But the second thing that you get is a great God. I think you get a great God when you come here, but that means something. It means that a lot of times I'm pushing because I never want anybody to say that my nice house and my nice car and my nice job and my nice security and my nice stability and my nice family and my nice dog make it to where I don't really need more, I'm okay, I'm, I'm in green waters and still pastures and everything is fine. When in fact, there's a table waiting for you where your head's anointed with oil and your cup runs over and goodness and mercy follow you every day and you dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's where he's trying to get us, and it's in love. It is possible for Christians to say this. There's just always something more. It's always push, push, push. So I'm just going to say I'm happy where I am, so I'm going to park here. Well, let me just dissuade you that that's something. Jesus, who lived in God's abundant blessing every moment, never felt that he had to do something more. Once you're living in God's presence, you're living in God's presence. Now, we can understand that maybe we won't ever get there perfectly like Jesus did, but I can tell you something. You can get there more and more and more if you're willing to allow him to do the more and more and more. And the more and more that you get there, the more and more peace that you have. The more and more that you're okay, and yeah, there may be some things that God is still working on you with, but they just become different. They don't become onerous. They don't become legalistic. They don't become works. They don't become, oh my God, I'm just so tired of this Christianity thing because it's so much. Do you see what I'm saying? Do you see what I think the Lord's trying to bring to us at this moment? Until we've entered into his abundant blessing, there will always be seasons of green pastures and still waters because God knows that we need to be refreshed. He knows that we need a break every once in a while. And so even if you're in the middle of something, you're going, I really need a break. Here's the one thing that's interesting about life. Look back at your life and the things that have happened that were difficult before. And what you will see is a season of rest. Still waters, green pastures, they do come. And you get refreshed. You get to rest. But he's not just trying to park you at good enough. That sort of horseshoe. Well, I was close. If you want to know, this is where Empowered comes back in. If you want to know how you can know whether or not you're living in this place with God, Jesus said the works that I do are going to be done even greater works because I'm going to be with the Father. Now, guess what? The disciples actually did greater works. You can literally add them up. The disciples did greater works. So are we doing what the disciples did? Now that may seem an odd measurement. Are we doing miracles? Because that's how most people would do that. But I actually just want to go much deeper than that. I want to go, are you living like a disciple? Are you? Or are you living like an American and a disciple? And I'm not trying to make you feel guilty if you are because that's what every single person in this room is actually doing. Unless you don't know the Lord. And if you don't, wonderful to have you here. Hope this is speaking to your heart. But here's the thing that I, I think God is trying to do with us. This is the message. This is the whole point. He's trying to get us to say yes. <laughs> He's given us this fantastic invitation. He doesn't compel it. He gave you free will. He doesn't want you to enter into it by works. He doesn't want to enter into it begrudgingly. He wants you to enter into it cheerfully with desire, with a heart that says, I want that. And so what we're going to do is, if you want that, Kevin's going to come up and strum behind us a little bit. And then what we're going to do is, is we're going to take a minute. We're not, we got one more thing to do, so please don't leave after you do this. And please don't take too long since, you know, we're our playoff games. No. But what I want you to do is, is I want you to sit there and say, do you want this? Here's the one thing I can tell you. You can't get it yourself. 
You cannot make it happen in yourself. So here's what yes means, and this is why I'm doing it as an altar call. We usually have communion in the seats, and we just pick it up and do communion together. But today I'm asking you to come forward, because there is this thing of coming forward and putting your feet to it and saying, I know that I can't get there, but I know that in your love, in your power, in your personhood, you can get me there. So what I'm doing by coming forward is I'm saying, God, I want to be there. Yes, Lord. Yes. If you don't want to say yes, if you're not ready for that, I love you. It's between you and the Lord. Nobody here is judging you. But if you do want to say yes, take a minute with him, pray it, come forward, grab some communion, back to your seats. Do, take your communion up here. Just leave the cups and so on. And then go back. We're going to do the last thing. Thank you, Jesus. just did now. You just became new wine in the new wineskin. You just agreed to let God take you someplace that you didn't know existed. As much as you're in comfort, as much as you're where you are, God is going to set you free and take you to where he wants you to take you, where he wants to. So Lord, in Jesus' name, I want to thank you for making this congregation new wine in a new wineskin 
the one that is of your making and that has nothing to do with the world. It has to do with the work of your hands, the beauty of your presence, the glory of you and you alone. So in Jesus' name, Lord, we say yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. And yes again. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Which means so be it, right? God, make it so. So amen. Ushers, thank you for coming forward. Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, we who, whom you have made new respond to you in every way. This is but one small, but real. It lets us put our feet where our heart is. And so we cheerfully, willingly, lovingly pour into you right now.